Hi, and welcome back to To Think Minimum. Today is March 31st, 2020, and I'm Scott Walston, President and Senior Fellow at the Technology Policy Institute. I'm joined by my colleague, TPI Senior Fellow, Sarah O. Oh. And today we are delighted to have as our guest, Ina Fried. Ina is the Chief Technology Correspondent for Axios. And before that, she was a senior editor uh, or writer at some of the most important tech journalism sites there are, Recode, All Things Digital, CNET, and others. Um, Ina, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Scott. Uh, so I want to start off with a, just a very general uh, open-ended question. Um, on March 18th, which seems like a lifetime ago now, uh, you wrote that this was tech's moment to shine or not, this being the coronavirus epidemic. Um, thinking back to that, and now we have a couple of weeks, almost a couple of weeks experience, how do you think they've done so far relative to sort of what you expected and what you were looking for at the time? I think the tech companies have done very well overall. Um, that's not to say there isn't room for improvement or there haven't been criticisms, but I think what you've seen is a lot of their own employees and contractors, as well as the things that they point, as well as keeping their platforms up and running for the very high demand that we all are relying on them for. Um, so along those metrics, I think they are doing quite well. Um, I think much is expected, the old saying, uh, too much is given, much is expected. I'm butchering that. But, you know, I think a lot is expected in this moment from tech. I think so far, they're delivering a lot of those things. Again, it's still early. Um, right. Well, what do you think they're doing particularly well? And um, you know, what should they be doing better? So on the doing well, I mean, certainly I think, and Microsoft was one of the first, and Twitter, um, bringing their employees home, but then agreeing to pay. There's a huge support workforce in tech. So, you know, you have the engineers at their desks who are often highly paid full-time employees, um, but you have much lower paid hourly workers often working for a contractor that are serving them their free meals and cleaning the place and doing even some tech work like QA. And in a lot of cases, those people aren't able to work from home. And so what you saw a lot of the tech companies do early on is um, vocally say, we're going to keep paying those people regardless of whether we need their services, regardless of whether they can do their jobs from home. And that was important, one, certainly important to those workers, um, which again, often outnumber the full-time employees, but also important as a signal of what large companies can do. Tech is fortunate to be very wealthy, to be able to do a lot of its work remotely. Um, so they're more fortunate than some in this situation. Certainly large restaurant chains, large retailers don't have the sort of resources at this moment, but I think they set a good example. So that's one. Mm -hmm. um, another thing I think they've done remarkably well so far is handle the increased load. Everyone is working, playing, and learning from home. And so far, knock on uh, wood if you have it, the internet has held up really well, but not just the overall internet, but also most of the key services uh, that we all rely on, whether it's the entertainment services like Netflix, uh, Twitter, uh, Facebook, as well as all the myriad uh, cloud-based services. Um, so I think they've done that well. Um, I think the other thing that they have done well is be good stewards to the community in terms of things that you wouldn't expect necessarily from tech, whether it's uh, making sure masks get donated, whether it was from their own wildfire supplies or Apple working through its supply chain saying we're gonna donate 13 million masks. 
things like that. You had Facebook step up and say uh, to California, who's trying to recruit retired doctors, look, you are gonna be paid, but if you need help with childcare, with housing, with transportation costs, Facebook uh, stepped up and said, we're gonna pay for that. So I think on those three dynamics, you've seen tech do really well. I think the one where there's increased pressure and will continue to be pressure is around misinformation. Um, mm -hmm. This is a time where we all want super accurate information. We don't want rumors spreading. And the platforms have struggled with this before coronavirus. So it's not a surprise that it's a big challenge at this moment. What we have seen interestingly is Twitter and Facebook in particular being willing to enforce stricter codes than they normally do around the virus than they do with other types of information. And how have they, how have they done with that? Um, you wrote a story just a, a, a few days ago, actually, maybe it was even yesterday, um, about Twitter deleting the tweets from Giuliani and the uh, Brazilian president um, and, uh, uh, and even taking the Federalists offline for uh, briefly. They didn't um, take the Federalist offline, but their Twitter account. Yeah. I'm sorry, right, of course, a Twitter account. Uh, so are they, are they acting more quickly on this? Is, is, it, is it easier for them than, um, than the more general uh, issues they deal with? I mean, sort of the broader question of misinformation? I don't think it's easier. I do think they're willing to take a tougher stand. Uh, typically, they try and lean as much as possible on free speech and be as limited as possible in what they take down. I think with the virus, they recognize these are life or death issues and are drawing a different line. So I don't think it's easier or harder. I think they're choosing a different line. Um, we have seen them take more action, particularly against prominent accounts than I think we've ever seen before. So mm -hmm. Twitter took down two tweets from the Brazilian leader um, and Facebook interrupted and took down a live broadcast um, saying that he's spreading misinformation likely to cause physical harm. Um, that's not something we would have seen either company do, I don't think, under previous circumstances. Certainly, there have been a lot of uh, calls for them to ban uh, Twitter in particular, to ban Donald Trump's account. They've not only not done that, but they've never even flagged one of his tweets for breaking the rules. So um, I do think on that respect, we're seeing them take more aggressive steps and actually not just announce policies, um, but do some enforcement. In the broad category of misinformation, I think still a lot is getting through. And I can only imagine in other languages, it's probably worse. I think in English, it's easier. Um, more people see it, more people flag it, more of the people at the company know it. Um, I'd be really uh, concerned uh, to look at how that's gonna play out, particularly as the developing world starts to be affected. And the other uh, piece of this is WhatsApp, which is encrypted peer-to-peer, right. -peer. it's much harder um, and we have seen a bunch of misinformation spread. Again, I think you're seeing Facebook, which owns WhatsApp, be more aggressive than normal, um, but the nature of the platform makes it harder. So on the misinformation front, I'd say they're, they're doing more than they normally do, um, but I think that's an area that we have to pay, continue to pay attention to and hold their feet to the fire. How do you think this will, um, how will it change, or will, will it change back after this, period is over because, you know, sort of your responses are kind of uh, opposite from what they might have been a few weeks ago, where now generally it seems like you know, people are very positive about the tech companies where they had been negative before, or maybe it's more in our little bubble that, that, that they had been because the polls just certainly didn't show them to be too unpopular, but, uh, and we're worried about their not taking down enough. 
is are, are we is the is the new normal going to be uh, more along the lines of what it is, it is now, where people remain happy and and they take and the company, the platforms themselves take a harder line on um, what they keep up there. I think this is one of the big questions, and not just for this narrow one, but broadly speaking, what of our new normal becomes persistent after the crisis abates and what doesn't? So um, I'd love to take that question in a lot of different directions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it, how do we shop? How do we live? All those things are really interesting. But to your particular one about, um, you know, sort of what they're doing, for example, on misinformation or their policies, I think there will be pressure on the tech companies um, they can't say any longer, we can't do this. Because people will be able to say, look, when it was about coronavirus, you were able to act really aggressively on misinformation. That's actually been a fallacy for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, the companies have taken action. Um, in Germany, for example, they're required to delete um, misinformation about the Holocaust, and they do. Um, so where they're forced to, they do. Um, but I think this will point out pretty emphatically um, that the companies can do more when they choose it. So I think there will be pressure. I don't think we will see them broadly be as aggressive about other kinds of misinformation, but I do think this will serve as a proof point for critics who say they can do more to show you've proven to us you can do more. Now take on hate and anti-vax and other attacks on science and truth. Um, this may be too big of a leap, but is it part of a, a general trend towards um, more centralized authority over everything? That's one of the big questions and concerns. Uh, there was a good piece uh, in the last couple of days on you know, authoritarians across the world using this to grab power that they may never let go of. I know in Hungary, the leader has been granted broad new authorities. Um, there's a lot of questions. In the US, we've had a lot of questions about Location data, which is obviously one of the most sensitive things. You can tell a tremendous amount. Um, it's easily collected because it's, that data lives in our smartphone. Um, there's a lot of decent public health reasons why we might want the government to have more access to that at this time. And a lot of equally valid concern that once we give up that information, we won't be able to get back the control that we had before. So I think this one's a really tough one. I think um, we really need to look at um, what are the best solutions to this question? Are there ways um, to share information that's either anonymized or using differential privacy or other techniques that would allow some of the information that public health officials could use um, to control the spread without blanketly giving up uh, our rights to our privacy and our location data um, which has been a perennial question for the industry and it intensifies as that data becomes more powerful and as our tools to analyze that data become more powerful. Curious to hear more of your take about like test and trace and just surveillance in pandemic times. Um, I think one thing that's underappreciated about the South Korea and Taiwan story is that the Ministry of Interior, you know, was tracing everybody who's positive um, through the government central database and and that's how they flatten the curve um, and and so i wonder you know what are those trade-offs um, for an american audience and um, do the costs you know outweigh the benefits 
So I think there's a couple of things to keep in mind, and it is a really important question. I think one is um, you really have to have widespread testing and do it early for that to be of a lot of value. So even if that was the right approach a while ago, it may still not be the right approach now, and we might be trading off privacy for lesser gains. Um, it can still be useful, as you point, um, once we know who has it and who doesn't, um, we may want to do the kind of re-entry where people who've had it and recovered are able to go back to work, people who haven't are tracked to make sure they don't get sick, that sort of thing. Um, the other is I do think there are cultural differences and um, those may not abate just in the name of science. So um, I wrote about this uh, a, few, a few days ago, a week ago, and talked about here are three big reasons it's not coming here, even though it has been effective elsewhere. One, um, we just don't have the widespread testing. So tracking and tracing only works if you can track. And right now we don't have anything to track. Even though we are doing more testing than we were, we're still only testing the sickest for the most part, the sickest and apparently NBA players. Um, so that's one reason. Um, but the other reasons uh, that I think are also important are um, our cultural values around privacy. And I don't think it's necessarily good or bad I think there are pros and cons to the different things. There's no question that um, not just authoritarian regimes, but regimes where individual liberties are less prized did a better job um, through sometimes very aggressive means. But you know, if you look at um, Singapore or Taiwan, places that are generally democratic and not necessarily authoritarian, but where there's more acceptance around compliance and more of a value around the societal good. We are a very individualistic society. I think the idea that we are largely sheltering in place in much of the country is something that I would have found unfathomable. I think the compliance for America is pretty good. It may not be good enough in a lot of places, but it's still uh, bucking our societal instincts. So I would be surprised, even if it's the right thing to do, if much of our solution uh, going forward relies on widespread testing and tracking. Again, not saying that wouldn't be the right thing to do from a public health standpoint. I just have a hard time seeing it take root in the US. Although you also said that um, you would have had a hard time seeing uh, shelter in place work in the US also. I mean, I, I would have too, and yet, I'm sitting um, in my bedroom, <laughs> sheltering. Yeah, and we are, we are socially distanced about as well as you can imagine. I'm <laughs> That's right. at our upstairs neighbors in San Francisco. Um, you know, so yeah, no, I mean, I think we have responded in ways that are unique. Um, at the same time, you've seen this tension play out. I mean, you've mm -hmm. seen the tension. Um, people have different opinions about it, but the we need to hunker down and have a nationwide lockdown versus we need to reopen the economy, this is America. Those are extremes, but I think a piece of that lives in all of us. We might have different amounts of that, um, but I think that's, that's our cultural identity, both, both wanting to stay safe and wanting to, to protect the most vulnerable in society, but also uh, we aren't a society that makes big sacrifices. It's one of the reasons, you know, we can't balance the budget or, uh, protect the environment or save social security is those are all things that require um, collective sacrifice for a long-term good. And uh, I just don't think that's our strongest suit. We have lots of good and admirable qualities as a country, but I don't think uh, uh, 
enduring short-term pain for long-term sacrifice is uh, something we're particularly good at. Are, are you seeing, I mean, in, in all the, your um, talkings to people and companies and policymakers and, and so on, are you seeing any shifts in that, either towards being willing to make sacrifices or are people beginning to get fed up and saying, I just can't take this anymore? Well, I don't think we've hit the fed up stage for most people. Again, there's a range and we've seen a few prominent examples of people not wanting to make even short-term sacrifice. I think we've, again, for the most part, I think you've seen um, admirable willingness of companies and individuals to put the collective good ahead. I do worry that that, you know, as this prolongs, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard for everyone. Like, there's no question this is a challenging time. Um, I don't know that we've seen a tremendous change in sort of um, policies. I think you've seen on the regulatory front, I think you've seen a lot of government agencies try to find ways to be flexible. Certainly, again, not institutions that are known for flexibility and quick change, but you've seen the FCC and the FDA and other um, state and local agencies try and figure out what rules need to be relaxed. So I look at things like allowing physicians to cross, to cross state lines or allowing um, people to work outside their specialty or making sure that people can get paid for telehealth since that's a lot safer. Um, relaxing school rules. There was a rule that in order to get a free or reduced lunch, the kid had to be physically present, which meant exposing another person when you went out to get the food. Um, through local action, that actually changed nationally. Um, so I think you've seen a remarkable amount, again, given the nature of the institutions, uh, and similar in the private sector, but the private sector has an easier time adjusting more quickly. So I, I do think um, regulators deserve uh, credit for recognizing their broader mission and how to preserve public safety, how to make sure we're not rushing unsafe things to the market, not opening the door for widespread fraud at the same time adjusting to a reality that uh, none of us particularly expected to be in. Is that surprising to you that um, regulators were able to react um, so, so quickly and so flexibly? Not, not to say that everything's worked, but that they certainly seem to be trying. Um, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, this has brought out the best of America more than the worst. It doesn't mean there haven't been examples of the other, but I think everyone's reality has adjusted so much. I think what, what helps enable, whether it's regulators or anyone to think differently is the fact that most of the assumptions we had in December of last year aren't true. Our world mm -hmm. looks very different. Um, and so it sort of lets the mind say, okay, maybe the fact that we've always done it this way doesn't mean that's the only way it can be done. While again, taking the mission into account, I think if you look at the FCC or the FDA, they're, they're still focused on their core mission. They're just recognizing that some of the procedures to get there don't make sense. We've seen similar things, you know, open government. There's really good reasons why governments have to meet in person and provide public notice and allow the public there except in rare circumstances. Well, it doesn't make sense for those same rules to be applied um, but, you know, you want a public Zoom meeting versus private email might be a way to achieve similar ends, recognizing the limits of the moment. I'm curious to hear your perspective from being somebody in San Francisco, California. You're kind of a month ahead of us on the East Coast. Um, what do you think about the procedures for reopening? Have, have people been talking about that in San Francisco? 
We really haven't. Um, so we are about a month ahead of some places in terms of when, when the outbreak started. We were also earlier in our development. It was sooner uh, than some of the other places, particularly New York, in um, addressing it. So even before there were official mandates, most people were working from home for several days to a week. Um, and then the Bay Area counties sheltered in place, and then we had a statewide. Um, so I think so far so good. Again, you can never declare victory, and I don't want um, folks to loosen up, but we have seen things be better than they could be. Um, at the same time, I don't think there's a better sense of when things get back to normal. Um, I think we've seen institutions provide dates. I think, like, I don't know if this was brilliance or happens. <laughs> But like when the schools first told us they'd be closed, they said three weeks. Now, it was pretty clear at the time it would probably be longer. Um, the reason I think that three week time period was good was that was about the most the average parent could handle hearing um, was, oh my goodness, I've got to take care of my kids for three weeks. Um, now then, you know, as we've kind of gotten pretty well into that, they're like, okay, it's going to be another month. And, you know, I don't think anyone would be surprised if the whole school year um, changes, but I don't think, you know, sometimes we can only handle so much information and I think uh, it's hard enough uh, working from home. Um, you know, I certainly, you know, we have more adults than kids, so I feel very fortunate, um, <laughs> but working from home with kids is challenging and certainly uh, I know some single parents out there and, it, you know, it's super hard or parents with multiple kids. Um, so I think, you know, the Bay Area has been ahead in a couple of areas. Also, we have more of an online life. More of us work in jobs that um, maybe we're working from home to begin with, or certainly had that ability. Um, so I think there's a bunch of things that are different. Um, I think what's not different is just there's a great amount that's unknown. None of us know what the end of that curve, what the end of the cycle looks like in America. We've seen a little bit in other places, but again, um, we haven't done the kinds of things that other countries have done. So I don't think we'll have the kind of rapid exit either um, that comes from really eradicating the disease, I think. Um, but again, I'm getting away from my field of knowledge. So I'm gonna stop before I become another one <laughs> of those annoying tech people who fancies themselves an epidemiologist. Uh, I think everybody fancies themselves an epidemiologist these days, especially on Facebook and Twitter. Um, but, so, but, but going back to your, your um, very particular area of expertise, journalism, how has this changed the way you do your job? Um, again, I think like a lot of things, it hasn't changed the core principles or the values or the things I'm trying to do as much as it's changed the methods. Um, one of the first things that changed really rapidly was um, as this all started, we were finishing up our season of Axios on HBO, the TV show we do. Oh. And normally that's all about flying to wherever somebody is, sitting down, having a really tough face-to-face -face interview. And we were like, okay, for this last episode, we got to focus on the virus. We got to scrap most of the things that we've already filmed and we have to do it over Zoom. Um, so I interviewed both uh, the CEO of Microsoft and the head of Crisis Text Line um, to talk about how they were experiencing the virus over Zoom, shot from, my home is actually too messy to film. <laughs> we used uh, a friend's um, shed, she shed that she'd built uh, and filmed there, um, but you know, over the internet. And so I think it's changed that. I think it's changed priorities too, is the other thing I've noticed. Uh, I really um, view it as 
an obligation, as a duty to use um, the space that I have to raise important issues. So kind of every day I'm looking at what's something that people aren't thinking about, about our changed reality, and I'm writing about it. Um, in some cases, even going outside of my area um, of technology, looking at issues around mental health and domestic violence, uh, LGBTQ issues that I think need to be raised um, and throwing my hat in. But even in tech, I think, you know, writing a daily tech newsletter, it's every day a question of, you know, how much do people want to hear about non-virus stuff? And so far the answer is, in my mind, not a whole lot. Like I kind of, I take the tone and I'm like, if I were reading a newsletter based on what today looked like, what would I want to hear about? And for the most part, it's the intersection of technology and the new world we're in, but it's hard to imagine just writing about much absent the uh, situation we find ourselves in. So if I'm writing about a new game, we wrote a feature, our one big thing one day last week was about Animal Crossing. I read that, I was gonna ask you about that. Um, but it was about it as a perfect antidote, a, a game for this moment. Um, like I think it's, it would have come out, it would have been a popular game probably in a different environment, but what made it particularly interesting was here's this fantasy that lets you create your own island um, in a moment where we're all trapped indoors. You know, my first thought, though, when reading that was that I can't believe that what people want to do is pretend that there's somewhere else where they can't see anybody. Well, that's true. Um, but you can visit other people's islands. That's there's right. no <laughs> social distancing in Animal Crossing. Right. <laughs> Um, but when you're saying you're, you're, you know, you're looking for uh, uh, what, you, what you want to see, what people are interested in and looking for stories that aren't being told, it looks like, I mean, you put together the um, collection of stories that you're, um, you're building over this time period. And it's, you know, it's starting to look like um, an investigation into the way American life is changing. Um, you've got, you know, you're talking about the different types of applications we're using, what we're buying now online instead of what we used to. Uh, is that, I mean, I, I know, I, I don't know that you're trying to put it together into a single story, but are you getting a sense that things have, are changing in a, in a major way? For sure. I mean, I think everything is changing right now. To your question earlier, I think the really interesting question that we probably won't fully know until we're past this and sort of readjusting to uh, non-COVID uh, influenced life is how much of this persists? what changes that we're making now are things that we go, you know what, this just works better. And what changes are we like, as soon as we have the opportunity, we're going back to. Um, I think the areas this will be particularly interesting are certainly areas around shopping and retail. I think this has opened people's eyes to how much can be done online. It doesn't mean we wanna do all those things online. Um, so I think more people have tried online grocery shopping than probably had before. Um, I don't think it will be the niche that it has been, but I'm not convinced everyone will suddenly give it up, particularly when the costs get factored back in. Um, you know, delivery has always existed, but there is a cost to it, whether it's hidden or not. Mm -hmm. um, and you see outside of pandemics, you know, groceries is not a high margin business. So you see that cost find its way in in general. Um, so how we shop, I think will be really interesting. How we work. Um, We've all proven that we can do our jobs from home. I think it's going to be harder for employers to mandate that everyone be in the office all the time. Um, that doesn't mean that a lot of people won't be thankful to have more separation between work and home. 
I know I'm a person who travels a ton and that's another area that changes. Um, and, you know, I used to say, oh, I just want to spend a week at home. Well, you know, I've gotten more than my fill. Um, it doesn't mean that I'm going to, uh, you know, go right back to traveling a ton, but I also don't think I'm going to stop traveling once that opportunity is open again. Um, I think, so those questions around how we work, conferences, you know, I think we've all seen, you know, basically every conference in our industry either canceled or go digital. Will that be the trend? I think people often talk about that. You know, you see that in a recession, you see travel budgets go down. Um, I think there is a place for personal interaction. And I actually think a lot of us will come out of this with a longing to reconnect with those colleagues that we've been Zooming with or texting and say, I actually want to see that person. I want to go have dinner. I want to talk to them over a cup of coffee. So I think, again, some of the changes will be permanent, but I think some of these things really are accommodations for the moment. And I don't totally have a handle on which or which. Right. Yeah. And it's hard to, it's, it's hard to know. I mean, as an, as an introvert, it's um, in some ways it's easy to stay home and not worry that I'm, you know, feel like I have to go to a conference. Um, but even I feel like it's, you know, it's, it's too much. You've got to, you've got to interact with people. Um, you want to, you know, see people, people talk about their papers in person. Um, so, yeah. Um, so what, one more question you said, um, you also said that uh, there were issues of um, LGBTQ um, with Corona, with, uh, uh, with the, with the quarantine and shelter in place. What, what are those specific issues? It's also trans day of visibility. So it seems, um, appropriate to talk about some of those, some of those issues. Um, it, it is. Thanks, thanks for bringing that up. I think, um, you know, it really is important to remember that um, sheltering in place looks really different for lots of different people. Um, and that's something that's become very clear in my reporting. If you are single, this is really an isolating moment. You're mm -hmm. maybe at home by yourself or with a pet or maybe a roommate that you're not that close with. That's one experience. Another experience that a lot of people are having is uh, their home, trying to work from home while raising a family. In that case, it's not necessarily a lack of attention. It's, you know, this different trying, you know, to have space and separate these things that are now pushed in close proximity. Um, but I've also paid a lot of attention to what it looks like for other communities, uh, including some that I'm a part of, like, uh, the LGBTQ, but also some that I'm not a part of. So, you know, if you were um, an LGBTQ youth who got a lot of support at school and live with parents that are maybe somewhat supportive or not supportive, your world changed dramatically when the schools got closed. Mm -hmm. um, you might have lost your access to support, um, to people who understand you, to, it might feel more isolating. Um, one of the issues I've looked at a lot uh, and I'm going to be writing about is around domestic violence. So some people are sheltering in place with an abusive partner. Right. Uh, and it's just a tremendously difficult space. You're putting a tremendous amount of pressure on an already unhealthy relationship. Um, I'm very concerned about the lack of resources uh, for that group. I think um, undocumented workers uh, are in a really tough space when it comes to uh, healthcare when it comes to accessing resources and benefits. So I think if there's one takeaway, it's really remembering that um, your shelter-in-place experience is not everyone's, and there's a lot of issues beyond just keeping people 
from getting COVID-19. Um, the mental health implications broadly, I think, are going to be huge for most people, including people dealing with other uh, issues. I think for people with disabilities, there's a real fear uh, that the criteria for how they're going to be treated, I think a lot of people are worried that if they get end up in the ER, that their life is going to be valued less. Uh, same with LGBTQ. I know there was a lot of concern in the last uh, 48 hours that the organization building this field hospital in New York is run by an organization whose leader is openly anti-LGBTQ. And I think there's wow. a worry, hey, when ventilators are in short supply, um, is my gender or sexuality going to make me less likely to get treatment? So I think there's just a ton of other issues um, that come up beyond the one that I think unites us, which is we're trying to slow the spread of a pandemic. Are, are there groups um, trying to deal with some of these issues? Uh, because like you said, we don't, we don't hear a lot about that, but are there places for people to go who have um, an abusive partner uh, or who need support in some way or undocumented immigrants, undocumented uh, immigrants who, you know, they often live in very crowded conditions. Um, are, there, are, there, are there people thinking about ways of, of handling these issues? There are, they tend to be the interest groups that were focusing on these issues before. Um, a couple of generic resources that are great. Um, Crisis Text Line is out there and they're a text messaging based uh, app, which is helpful when people can't necessarily get to a safe phone to call. Uh, that's one option and they deal with all kinds of issues. Have been primarily oriented at youth, but dealing with a much broader population in this age. The National uh, Domestic Violence Hotline is fully operating. Not all of the resources that are normally available to people in abusive relationships are there, but many are. Um, some, but not all shelters are still taking in people. Um, so a lot of the resources that exist still exist, um, but there are, there are limits. Um, courts aren't as open as they were. If you're trying to get a protective order, that's still possible in many places. In some it's not, or it's more challenging. Um, ICE and immigration enforcement has been an open question. Uh, they've not been super clear about whether they would or wouldn't uh, go after people in a healthcare setting. I think they've said that they won't normally, only in extreme circumstances, but that's tough to feel comfortable with if right. you are undocumented. Obviously, if you're undocumented and need healthcare, uh, definitely think you should. And um, there are groups that are trying to protect people uh, who are in that situation. Yeah, um, that's a good reminder that uh, this, this can be particularly difficult for a lot of people. And the biggest thing I've heard too is reach out to your friends. Like if you know someone that might be in a problematic situation, check in with them, see how they're doing. Um, in general, um, you know, I think people, people in a tougher situation are going to have a tendency to feel even more isolated, maybe isolating themselves. Uh, reach out, you know, check in on people. Um, there's a lot we can do to be allies to our neighbors. We've seen some great stuff too. Again, I think we've seen a lot of good humanity of people going shopping for their older neighbors, of uh, seeing who needs uh, resources around them, of, you know, scrounging up uh, surplus protective equipment and making sure it gets to the hospitals. Um, but really, you know, I think it is a good time to uh, check in on those, you know, those uh, you might barely know, you know, I think these do bring neighborhoods together, ironically, even though it's social distancing. I know I'm 
much more connected to my physical neighbors, many of whom I didn't even know by name before all this. Mm. Yeah, I'm finding the same in our neighborhood. We have, uh, there, are, there are nightly concerts where people, of course, are spread appropriately, just, you know, far apart, um, but porch concerts, it's, not, it's, it's nice. Um, but you're right, it's an important time to remember to do nice things for other people when you can. Um, so I, that's probably a good time to, a good place to stop. Uh, so, you know, thank you so much. Uh, that was, uh, that was really interesting. I appreciate you. I always enjoy coming on.